is Jude and I'm from 530 Macquarie Park and I will be reading 1 Samuel chapter 18 verses 1 to 6 uh, which you can find on page 245. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. We're now going to um, jump to 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, which is just the next page over. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what has he done? And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Hi, I'm Eric. I go to the 7 p.m. at Kirribilli, and this reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 17 and 35 through 42. These can be found on page 247 of your Black Bibles. Then David fled from Nioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and said, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked for my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant 
with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan replied. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed to you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan and David and Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him and saying, Isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only David and Jonathan knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is a witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. Nice to see you all. My name is Paul, if I haven't met. Uh, it would be really helpful for me if you could grab your Bibles and open at 1 Samuel 18. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. It would be really helpful to have your Bibles open. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Lord, we, we do thank you that your word is living and active, and you promise that it will not return empty. And so we pray now for a work of your spirit, that he may take your words and implant them deep in our hearts and minds. Lord, we, we long to hear you. We long to believe you, to love you, to serve you, to obey you, to honor you. And so please do a mighty work through your word and by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's our question this morning. It's a question that Jesus asked Peter. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You might know after the resurrection that they had breakfast on the beach together and, and Jesus had his disciple Peter, his friend, his disciple, his apostle, and he asked him not once, not twice, not three times, do you love me? He didn't ask, do you believe in me? Do you trust me? Do you like me? He says, do you love me? 
Because love is a much more personal word, isn't it? It's more affectionate. It's more holistic. It's, do you love me? That's our, our question this morning. It's the question that I like to ask people at church. You know, don't ask people, how's your faith? Don't ask people, how's your spiritual life? Ask them, how's your love for Jesus? How's your love for Jesus right now? Are, are you loving Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you, are you growing in your love for Jesus? Because it, it's more personal. It's more relational. It's more intimate. It's the heart of the Christian life, your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Peter said in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Now here's the problem. Love is such a, a vanilla word, isn't it? Because I can say, I can stand here today and say, I love running. I love coffee. I love my wife. But it's not the same kind of love, is it? It's the object of your love that matters. I mean, my, my love for my wife is so different to my love for coffee. I'm sure you're happy about that. <laughs> you know, and love is relational. Love is personal. And we're not talking about a romantic love when we talk about love for Jesus. I hope you know that. Because our world sees love as just this, this, this feeling you fall in love and you fall out of love. It just comes and goes. That's not the love we're talking about. This love for Jesus, it is committed, it's intimate, it's deep, it's a wholehearted surrender to him. So I want to ask you right up front this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I'm not asking whether your friend loves Jesus or your colleague loves Jesus, or I'm asking you, do you really love Jesus? That's a different question. What's the opposite of the word love? What's the opposite of the word love? It's not like. It's hate. Hate is a strong word, but it's what the Bible says. You either love Jesus or you hate Jesus. Tim Keller says this, Jesus cannot just be liked. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. I love that, either kill Jesus or crown him. Hate him or love him. So where are you this morning? Do you, do you love him or do you hate him? Do you love him or do you hate him? We're in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and we're Look at these two responses to King David. And some hate him and others love him. Some want to kill him, others want to crown him. If you just joined us today, uh, 1 Samuel 18, we're, we're following the life of David. David has been anointed as king, but he's not yet publicly recognized as king. He, he's lived in, in obscurity. He's just a, a shepherd boy tending sheep. But all that changed the day that he, he defeated that mighty Goliath. Not with sword, not with shield, but with a, the, the name of the, the Almighty God. And now he's famous and everyone is talking about David. Everybody loves David. Let's unpack this word love. Love. Jonathan loved David. Look at 18 verse 1. After David finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. 
hope you know, Jonathan was King Saul's eldest son. So he is, he is the crown prince. He is the heir to the throne. He is the one who will be stepping up soon to be the new king. So, so David, God's chosen king, he should have been a threat. He should have been a thorn in Jonathan's side because David was more popular. He was braver. He was more successful. But there's no jealousy, no envy, no hatred. It's just love. This deep-seated love. Let me read verse 1 literally. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and he loved him as he loved himself. They were kind of co-joined. They were united, this deep soul-level love. It's affection. He doesn't just admire David. He doesn't just think, oh, David is a brave warrior. He loves him. He cares for him. He, their lives are intertwined. They're two hearts that beat as one. It's like Jonathan and David, they, they, they get each other. They are there for each other. They're committed to each other in every season of life, the good and the bad, the, the mountaintops and the valleys. And they make this covenant in verse 3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him. A covenant is that, that binding agreement, that commitment, that unbroken commitment. He's kind of saying this is a never-changing friendship. I'm committed to you. I'm here for you. Let's do life together. And there's moments where life is tough and there's moments where you are struggling. You've made this covenant. Let's stick together. That is Jonathan's love for David. I love how it ended in chapter 20, verse 41. 20, verse 41, David got up and bowed before Jonathan three times. They kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. The kiss, a sign of friendship, the weeping because they love each other, and the sworn friendship in the name of the Lord. These two guys, they just love each other. It's the most beautiful, intimate, rich, deep, pure, committed friendship. It's all based on love. It's not a romantic, sexual love. Please don't buy into all that garbage of Jonathan and David having a homosexual relationship. That's not it. These two men are just deeply committed to each other in love. Why is it so weird and difficult to say to a friend, I love you? A friendship is a beautiful, beautiful gift from God, isn't it? Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for a time of adversity. Proverbs 18, 24, one who has an unreliable friend soon comes to ruin. There is a friend who sticks closer than the brother. And I just wonder whether we've lost this art of friendship. We are surrounded by a million acquaintances, but we have few true friends. We love hanging out with the masses, but, but who really knows you? Then we flip from one friendship to another. We leave behind a trail of, of broken friendship. I have to say, social media is killing friendships. There's no relation, there's no depth, there is no long haul. It's all superficial, it's all fake. And God loves friendships. 
A friend is somebody who, who gets you, who knows you, who cares for you, who's committed to you, who's there in every season of life, the good and the bad. And we all need that, don't we? The friend who will comfort, who will counsel, who will correct, who will rejoice. Love this. A friend is one who multiplies your joys and divides your grief. A friend is one who understands your silence. And a friend is one who comes in when everybody else has gone out. So who are your friends? And are you a friend? It's a bit cheesy, but it is true that Jesus is the best friend you could ever have. He really is the best friend you could ever have. The flawless friend who loves you unconditionally, who loves you selflessly. He, he never fails you. He's always there for you. You never walk alone. He's, he, he's the best friend you ever have. So this love of Jonathan for David, it was affectionate. He was his friend. But it's way more than that. It's, a, it's actually about abdication because David was his Lord. Come back to 18 verse 4. Jonathan took off his robe and he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. That is significant. It's surprising because the clothes that Jonathan was wearing, they're like a symbol of his position, of his power. He's saying, I'm, I'm the crown prince. I'm heir to the throne. I'm going to take off my robe and hand it to you, David. Here, David, you wear this robe. You wear this tunic. You take my sword because... This kingship, it belongs to you. I'm abdicating my rights as the future king and I'm handing it over to you, David. I'm surrendering to you. We're about to celebrate the Queen's 70th jubilee. It's an astonishing 70 years on the throne. She's a legend, isn't she? But do you know, she, she, was, she wasn't born to be queen. She wasn't supposed to be queen. Edward VIII was on the throne. He was king, but he chose to abdicate. He handed over the crown to his brother, who was George VI, who was Elizabeth's father, and suddenly Elizabeth found herself the heir to the throne. She didn't want it. She didn't choose it. It was handed to her. Abdication is always, always, always shocking. When you give up your rights, when you surrender you surrender your rights. You surrender what, what is rightfully yours. And that's what Jonathan is doing here. He's abdicating. He's handing over the kingship. He says in, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 17, he said, uh, Jonathan says, David, you shall be king and I shall be next to you. He says, I'll move over to the passenger seat. You stay in the driving seat. You take the driving wheel now. Someone said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. That's abdication. You're gracious enough to step back and let somebody else be king of your life. And that's the story of Jonathan's life. Every day his posture was surrender and submission. What is best for David? How can I support David? How can I honour David? What is good for David? It's that selflessness. Now you see the links to Jesus? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is great David's greatest son. God's chosen king, the unlikely one born at Bethlehem, who goes into battle for you, not against Goliath, but he, he defeats your sin. He defeats death. 
He smashes through the grave. And he is rightfully king. He is ruling and reigning and victorious on his throne right now. And you've got a choice to make. If you really love Jesus, you are called to abdicate, to stop being king of your life and let Jesus be king of your life, to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, to play second fiddle to Jesus. And to love Jesus means that you abdicate, you stop thinking that you reign over your entire life, you hand over control to the Lord Jesus Christ and he's a way better king than you ever will be. Oswald Chambers says this, there's only one thing God wants us to do, is to, that is unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. Surrender your worldly ambitions. Surrender your wants. Surrender all those selfish desires. Surrender your plans. And you say, no God, you are God. You rule my life. Lord Jesus, King of my life, show me. Show me where you want me. Show me where I'm not surrendering. Because I hope as you sit here this morning, you know there is something reigning on the throne of your life. And I hope it's not you. I hope it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So it means to love Jesus, to let Jesus be king, to let Jesus take charge, to exalt Jesus, magnify Jesus, glorify Jesus. That's what it means to be abdicating because Jesus Christ is not just your friend. He, he wants to be the Lord of your life. We heard of a guy called Henri Neuwin. Probably having it. He's an extraordinary theologian, extraordinary pastor, brilliant, beautiful Christian man. In his old age, when he was 70, he took a sabbatical and he learned the trapeze. You know the trapeze, that crazy circus thing where you, you let go, you fly through the air, and someone catches you? Why the heck would he learn the trapeze age 70? He says this. I wanted to understand surrender. Surrendering is like a trapeze artist. That moment that you are suspended in midair, waiting to be caught and trusting that you will be caught. You must surrender control. The people being caught must be completely still, placing their total trust in the catcher's ability and not in their own abilities. As I, as I hung in the air, dependent on another, my faith was nourished through that tangible release of control, and I finally understood that word surrender. And maybe you're here this morning, and you've never, ever, ever surrendered to Jesus. You claim to love him, but you are making all the decisions based on what you want, and you're living your life with a, 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 a token Jesus but you haven't actually abdicated and put him king of your life. D.L. Moody says, let God have your life. God can do way more with it than you can. So do you love Jesus? He, he is your friend, so have affection. He is your Lord, so abdicate. Now, Jonathan loved David. Everyone loved David. No, they didn't actually. Not everyone loved David. There was one man who didn't love David. His name was Saul, and he hated David. Hated him. There is, there is no way in the world that Saul would play second fiddle. There's no way in the world that, that Saul would surrender to David. There's no way that, that Saul would share his glory with David because Saul was determined to be boss of his own life. He was the most important person in his life. Everything he did was all about him. 
Ever met those kind of people? Now this hatred for David, it started with jealousy. Come back to 18 verse 6, we're back to the day when David defeated Goliath. It's like the homecoming celebration, the ticker tape parade. 18 verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to, to meet King Saul, to honour King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs. That was the tradition, with timbrels, with tambourines and with harps and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul, verse 8, was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands? How dare they? Who does David think he is? What more could he get but the kingdom? That's ironic, isn't it? It's pure jealousy. These women meant no harm. They went out to meet Saul, not David. They put Saul's name first, not David's. It's just Hebrew poetry. The second line just just beefs up the first line. They're not saying anything about David. They're talking about Saul, how great Saul is. But, But Saul hears his song, and he's so consumed with jealousy. It's back in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, someone better than you will take your kingdom. Someone better than you. And, and, and Saul cannot stand a thought that there might be somebody else in the world who's better than him. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, our, our, our words reveal our heart. What comes out of your mouth will reveal what's in your heart. And Saul's heart is full of jealousy. It's like little kids on, on Christmas Day. Have you ever seen a jealous child? And you, you give your children presents on Christmas Day and you, and you give them this great gift and they like their gift until their sibling gets a better gift. And then they shout and they scream and they have a temper tantrum. But we won't do that because we're adults, aren't we? And so we don't have temper tantrums, we just sulk and we manipulate. And our hearts were thinking, who do they think they are? Jealousy is this horrible, horrible emotion where you resent others. When some, someone has something that you want, you, you're filled with, with anger and hatred. And let me say, jealousy will consume you. If you're jealous of somebody, you'll you start to analyse every conversation, you will, every word that was spoken, you will think irrationally, you will behave like a lunatic because it's overwhelming. It eats away at you. Proverbs 27 says, this anger is cruel, fury is overwhelming, but, but who can stand against jealousy? If you are jealous of anything this morning, stop it, fight it, get rid of it. It will destroy you. There's a short step from jealousy, though, to hostility and hatred and murder. And the key line is verse 9. 18 verse 9. From that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Not an eye of affection, but an eye of jealousy, of hatred. We say if looks could kill. Saul is looking for a way to kill David. From this point on, for the rest of 1 Samuel, 
Saul relentlessly pursues David and out to kill him. And if anyone's ever said to you that the Bible is really boring, they have not read 1 Samuel. I'm just going to very quickly just show all these little plots to kill David. I've called the first an Operation Spearfish. Verses 10 and 11. An evil spirit comes on Saul and he has his moment, he has his mood swings, he has his weird spells and David is there playing the harp as usual and Saul has a spear in his hand, verse 10, and that is ominous. There's some music therapy happening but Saul gets his spear and he hurls it, verse 11, saying to himself, I will pin David to that wall, let me kill him, I hate him. But, but David ducks and dives and swivels and they'll lose him twice. Verse 12 is fascinating. Saul was afraid of David. Isn't that bizarre? You expect David to be afraid of Saul because he's got a spear in his hand. But Saul is afraid of David because the Lord was with David. Uh, Verses 17 to 29, you've got what I call Operation Weddings and Funerals. Uh, And just to summarize it for you, Saul's got this daughter called Merab, and he's going to hand his daughter to Merab to David in marriage. But there's conditions attached. The conditions is that David has to fight the Philistines. And, and so Saul is kind of playing a, a law of average that if David goes to fight the Philistines often enough, then the Philistines will kill him. But David declines the marriage. But it just so happens he's got another daughter called Michal. And Michal loves David. And so Saul gives Michal in marriage to David. But there's conditions attached. There's a, there's a bridal price, quite an unusual bridal price. It's actually 100 Philistine foreskins. And so David has to go out to fight the Philistines, to kill a hundred Philistines, to bring a hundred foreskins, and you think that's impossible. But of course the Lord's with David, and so he brings 200 foreskins, and he defeats the Philistines. And so when Saul is furious because David is still alive, and so the next operation we call Operation Play Murder. Chapter 19, verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. There it is. Out in the open. I'm out to kill him. But Jonathan warns David, says, be on your guard, hide, I'll speak to dad for you. And he speaks to his dad and he says, what's he done wrong to you? Why kill an innocent man? It's amazing how many dilemmas can be resolved if we talk to each other. Then you've got Operation Spearfish again. He tries to kill him again with his javelin. Then you've got Operation Home Invasion in 19 verses 11 to 17. That's a great read. 19, 11 to 17, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But David's wife, Michal, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. It's this crazy episode where husband and wife are talking in the kitchen. The men are outside trying to kill him. And Mikhail comes with this, this plan. They're going to get an idol, a dummy. They could put a dummy in the bed. You ever seen that done? Put a dummy in the bed, put some goat's hair on the head, pretend it's, a, it's David, and when the men, men come, we'll say, he's sick. He's in bed sick. So the men come. The wife said he's sick. Saul gets furious. Saul says, well, bring him to me on, on, on his bed. When they go back, they find that the, the pillows in the bed is a dummy. They are spewing, and, and Saul, Saul's out to kill him again. And it just keeps on going. That crazy episode in chapter 20 of all these spears being, all these arrows being shot and the place at the table. But just coming to, to 1 verse, 20 verse 30. 20 verse 30. 
Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't, you know that, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Now you get the impression that Saul doesn't like David? Now, this is ridiculous. Again, it just reminds me when the Lord Jesus Christ, great David's greatest son, walked on earth. Let's think about Jesus, full of compassion, full of kindness, full of grace, full of truth. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. The Lord Jesus walked on earth, and yet, how did people respond to him? The Pharisees, the, the scribes, the religious people says, kill him. And when the crowds have got before them, Barabbas, a known criminal, an evil person, and the Lord Jesus Christ, full of kindness, full of compassion, the crowd shout, crucify him. When Jesus stepped on earth, people hated him. Not everyone loved him, some hated him. And it's true today, isn't it? Don't give me this garbage that people admire Jesus and like him and think he's a nice man. They don't. As people look at the claims of Jesus Christ, they they refuse to allow Jesus to be king of their life. And Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. So don't be surprised, my friends, if you stand up for Jesus and say Jesus is king of your life, that people don't like you. We're not here to be liked, are we? We're here to abdicate to Jesus, to give Jesus all the glory and honour, yes? And, And so when people hate you, they hate you because they hate the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, our media hates Jesus. Our media will do everything they possibly can to mock and to ridicule and to, to, to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. As we live in this world, I'm looking at my kids who are, what, 6, 8, 10, and 17, I'm thinking, what, what would it be like for them to, to grow up as a Christian in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, in 30 years' time? Because gone are the days where, where people like church and people like Christians. They don't. They despise us. They hate us. But you know that that verse in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every human being will will, will bow before King Jesus and give an account. And some will come in fear, some with faith. So do not be surprised when people hate Jesus. They hated King David, his great, 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 great grandson. I'm going to finish this morning on the word love, though, because I can't finish on the word hate. I want to say that love is not just an affection that Jesus is your friend. It's not just abdication that Jesus is your Lord. Love means that you do what Jesus tells you to do. You, you act on it. Just one verse, 20 verse 4. Jonathan says to David, whatever you want me to do, I will do it for you. That's the verse. Whatever you ask me to do, I will do it for you. And that's the life of Jonathan. His friendship, his love for 
David meant that he did exactly what David asked him to do. He spent his entire life protecting David, defending David, promoting David, being there for David. Whatever David asked him to do, Jonathan did. And that's where the rubber hits the road if you claim to be a Christian this morning. If you claim to love Jesus, you say, do you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. Well, show me. Show me how you love Jesus. It's like the man who says, oh, I really, really love my wife. Well, show me. Do things and say things which actually are evidence that you really do love your wife. It's John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, says Jesus. If you love me, keep my commands. Because you can't claim to love Jesus Christ if your words and your actions and your decisions and your behavior is not actually obeying him. What Jesus asks us to do, we do. We love him above anything and anyone else. And sure, sometimes that's costly. Just like Jonathan loved David with his deep-seated love, I want to ask you, as I finish, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? I'll ask you again, do you love Jesus? I'm not asking if you admire him. I'm not asking if you have faith. I'm not asking if you respect him. I'm not asking if you like him. Do you love him? Is he your best friend? Is he king of your life? And will you live a life of obedience? Whatever he asks you to do, yep, I'll do it for you. Let me pray. I want to quote the words of this song, this great song that we often sing. I love you, Lord. Your mercy never fails me. Make that prayer your own. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And your mercies never fail me. All my days I'm held in your hand. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of my God. I love you, Lord. I love you.